This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Race, religion, and identity are often in the news in 2019, but this is not new. However, how people associate with mainstream terms changes with the times and preferences of the population. For example, World War II draft cards used racial categories to put registrants into specific categories, but not all people of the time period accepted the government-issued designations. Occasionally, black registrants asked draft registrars to write down olive as the skin complexion and Moorish or Ethiopian Hebrew in the race category. The reason for these requests were religious in nature, as well as the shirking of labels associated with slavery in the United States and the assertment over control of how one identifies themselves on government documents. The anecdote above, based on many examples and years of archival research compiled in the book New World A Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration, by Dr. Judith Weisenfeld from Princeton University, tells the stories of the charismatic leaders and ordinary adherents of groups like the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of Islam, Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement, and Ethiopian Hebrews. In this beautiful book full of amazing photographs, stories, collages, draft registration cards, drawings, and flyers from throughout the Great Migration years of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, Weisenfeld examines how some groups of people view religious and racial identities as divinely ordained, inseparable, and how self-identity and political sensibilities are conceived. Dr. Judith Weisenfeld teaches in the Department of Religion at Princeton University, where she is the Agate Brown and George L. Collard Professor of Religion and Associated Faculty in the Department of African American Studies and the Program in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Her research focuses on early 20th century African American religious history, and she is especially interested in the relation of religion to constructions of race, the impact on black religious life of migration, immigration, and urbanization in African-American women's religious history, and religion and film and popular culture. Please visit her website at judithweisenfeld.com and follow her at twitter.com slash jlweisenfeld. As always, If you like this show, you can follow me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast, or support this work at Patreon.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. It was a delight to speak to Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, and I hope you enjoy our conversation on the book, New World A-Coming, out now in paperback from New York University Press. Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. Uh, It's so great to have you. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. I'm a scholar of early 20th century African-American religious history, and I teach at Princeton in the Department of Religion, where I'm also affiliated with the Department of African American Studies and the programs in Gender and Sexuality Studies and uh, American Studies. And um, most, of my, most of my research has been on in two areas. One, on the impact of uh, urbanization and migration on African American religious life. And the second area of focus has been on um, sort of cultural 
constructions of race and religion in America. So one project I looked at how film, uh, early sound films helped to produce um, popular images of African-American religious life. And so these two have come together in my most recent book on... um, largely on questions of racial construction and racial identity. Excellent. Well, uh, we are here today to talk about your uh, most recent book, New World Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. And this book just came out in paperback in 2019 from NYU Press. And we're a few years on from the publication of the first edition hardback in 2016. So, In the last three years, you know, a lot of news has been coming out in the world and a lot of uh, things about religion as well from every year keep happening. But I'm curious that about three years on from the original publication, what does the title New World A-Comin' mean to you down the road? It's an interesting question in that that was not my title for the book. Um, And the subtitle is close to what I... Um, had wanted, but but the press suggested changes. So for for many years, the working title of the project was Apostles of Race. Mm. And um, that title, that working title was drawn from a chapter within a book by journalist Roy Otley that's titled New World A-Coming. And the subtitle of his book is Inside Black America. So that was a portrait from the 1940s of really life in Harlem, life and culture in Harlem. And he profiled religious and political leaders and cultural life. And and I was really taken with the, the title of one of his chapters, Apostles of Race. And the press suggested when we came um, to the end of the project and thinking about getting into publication that, that we needed something that captured the kind of dynamism of the groups better than my working title, and they suggested New World A-Coming. And I was disappointed for a long time because it just lived in my head and other people had read drafts and students all thought of it as apostles of race. But I'm actually, you know, down the road now. Um, I think it was a great decision to focus on that question of dynamism and creativity. And um, I think, I'm not sure that I can chart some ways in which my attitude towards it has has changed in the interim, but I think it was the right move to focus on um, this um, these groups that I that I talk about as representing um, particular modes of black cultural creativity. Interesting. Okay, so, you know, as I was reading the book, um, I was reading the acknowledgments first, because it's right up front in the book, and I see that you're friends with some past podcast guests, like Rachel Lindsay from SLU, and Nicole Kirk from Meadville Lombard Theological, and then you mention Rachel when you say the book grew out of a course that you were teaching, and I'm curious if you can just tell the listener how a course you were teaching became a book and how um, Rachel possibly played a role early in that process. I was working on a different project for a long time. So after I finished my second book on on film and African American religion, I that book took a long time for um, several reasons. Um, some usual reasons books take a long time to do, and some unusual reasons and I just I loved doing that project so much and it mm-hmm. I didn't it takes so long to do one of these things it's so much work that you have to have a kind of internal engine that will just keep you going and I didn't I, I was I didn't have the next thing in mind but I was but one you know in this profession people always ask you what are you working on what are you working on and so there's a way in which I think a lot of people just kind of make work and so I was making work. I was trying to actually answer a question that that lingered for me from the last book. 
And I, it just wasn't turning into a book. And I was struggling with it. I was able to write some smaller pieces. So I thought I would just teach a course to revisit some of the things that had really long interested me in the field of early 20th century African-American religious history. And in fact, the reason I got into the, the period and the kinds of materials I work on was an interest in these new religious movements that came, up in, came out of the Great Migration. And so I taught a graduate course to um, to review some of the primary sources that had captured my attention back going back to my undergraduate years, and then to see how how the scholarship had developed over the years. Um, I, that I had not been paying attention to it uh, very closely, and so Rachel was a graduate student in our department at the time, and although she was out of coursework, she decided to audit the course. And so she and, a, and several graduate students sat with me every week reading primary and secondary sources. And in the course of doing this, I, um, I realized, you know, when I was just kind of poking around in databases and newspapers and things um, in my spare time, what I was looking for uh, were things related to this topic and not to the book I said I was working on. <laughs> and the graduate students in the course were the ones who persuaded me to do this book, actually. So they, and by the end of the semester, it was a spring course, I realized how excited I was about the topic, that, that there were things I thought I could contribute, even though there was a lot of great new literature on, on these groups. And so before the semester ended, I drafted a grant proposal and the graduate students in it gave me great feedback and I was off. So Rachel was great help in that. Wonderful. Well, and I actually had lunch with Nicole Kirk, your friend recently, and she was talking about the power of your like writing groups and like supporting each other. Um, how does a writing group help your process like at this point in your uh, professional career? In, in two ways that I've been in groups, um, I've been in f writing groups from the beginning of my career, um, different kinds. And we have, a, we have a weekly workshop at, in our program at Princeton where we read works in progress. And so I get to present work on a calendar, you know, um, along with graduate students and colleagues and visitors. And so having feedback on works in progress has been really helpful. And, and our community read a lot of parts of, of this book. Um, over the years. But the group I've most recently been in with Nicole has been a kind of, um, a, I guess what people call an accountability group. Mm. So we didn't really often read each other's work. Um, Annie Blazer, who's at College of William and Mary, was the cooked this up when she was here as a visitor. Um, and so we, it's a kind of check-in group where we talk about goals and what kinds of impediments we're facing to meeting those goals and get feedback from people. But just kind of, I learned this early on in my, um, in my career, and I was kind of doing it by myself. I would just announce to people, I'm going to have this chapter drafted by X date and never quite, you know, you don't usually meet deadlines exactly in that way but publicizing goals and then having people say hey how did how did that turn out has been really a really useful um, mode for me and this group kind of formalized it wonderful well i have that kind of like pressure that i put on myself to continue doing this show and opportunities keep arising and but it's also a ton of work to keep yourself internally engaged uh for a project like a writing group or doing a radio show or anything like that so um, it's really essential. So I want to go back to the book. Um, what are a few of the biggest religious groups that you describe in the book? The book focuses on a kind of subset of a broader 
range of new religious developments that happen in the context of this migration to the north and immigration from the Caribbean uh, in the early 20th century. And so it's a subset because um, the main lens through which I'm analyzing them has to do with the ways in which they talk about race in relation to religion. So it's not a survey of all new religious movements or communities that develop, but ones that give us insight into some of the transformations in um, thinking about racial identity. So I look at the, perhaps the best known of these is the Nation of Islam, which uh, is founded in 1930 in Detroit. And I also look at the more science temple that has roots in New Jersey in the 19-teens and then becomes um, a much more prominent group in Chicago by the end of the 1920s. Um, and congregations of, uh, that call themselves Ethiopian Hebrew congregations made up primarily of immigrants from the Caribbean. And then another of the well-known groups is Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement that uh, becomes very prominent in New York City and then um, moves the headquarters to Philadelphia, but is uh, has national and international movement as well. Do these three groups see their overall belief structures as being derived from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? The, the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations are... Um, very much connected to uh, to Judaism, they see themselves as um, the uh, of the lost tribes of Israel. So they are Israelites of the Bible. They see biblical history as African history, and African history as biblical history, but particularly West Africa. They talk about, and so they see. Um, they connect themselves to Jewish history and understand um, their history as Ethiopian Hebrews to have diverged in some ways from the history of Jews of European descent. But, but again, they're um, uh, religiously connected. The more Science Temple and the Nation of Islam talk about themselves as as Islamic groups, as Muslim groups. And Father Divine's movement is organized around the idea that he is the God of the Bible in the flesh. And so um, it is in in the, a Christian lineage as well. Some of Rachel Lindsay's work has been on uh, really um, uh, explicating how the Bible functions for the peace mission movement. Wonderful. Okay, so the subtitle of the book includes the phrase black religion and racial identity. And then throughout the book, I noticed that you often use the phrase religio-racial identity. So you write that the term designates, quote, a set of early 20th century black religious movements whose members believed that understanding black people's true racial history and identity revealed their correct and divinely ordained religious orientation. So my question is, um, simply put, what does it mean to have a religio-racial identity for members of the Moorish Science Temple, Ethiopian Hebrews, Nation of Islam, and Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement? What does that term mean? I I use it to, to talk again about this idea that... that that religion and race are interdependent identities for them. So in all cases, although they come out the other side of this um, in, in, with different conclusions, but they all reject the idea that, that they are Negroes. So as a racial identity, they see that, or as a racial um, ascription, label, category, classification, they see that as something that is the product of enslavement and was imposed on them. And so 
members of these groups, founders and members, are on a search for their true, from their perspective, their true racial identity. Um, the Morris Science Temple people announce at many points, God did not make us Negroes, right? That's a category that to them is just, it's fabricated. So they see religion as a way of discerning their true racial identity and that these things are necessarily connected. So, I mean, one of the, one of the things that interested me in terms of um, pursuing this project was that, you know, there's a lot of good work on the groups as kind of single groups alone. Um, I, I was interested in the fact that they emerge at the same time and that these ones are doing similar moves in relation to race or rejecting um, Negro. Um, and the new, the more recent works are very interested in the first question you asked me, how, how do they sit in relation to Judaism, Christianity, Islam? But it, I still didn't have answers to the question of why are they calling themselves Ethiopian Hebrews or Asiatic Muslims, or Moorish Muslims? What, what did that other part, how did that figure, the Ethiopian, the Moorish, the Asiatic? And for Father Divine's movement, it's a complete rejection of race. So my, the question remained for me, what is the, that racial component? What is that language doing for them in understanding who they are? And so I came up with this idea of religio-racial identity to capture for their perspective, that that these are inseparable. And I know the book also goes into practices of self-fashioning to help adherents experience and express religio-racial identities. Can you describe what the groups would facilitate for new adherents to help them change and maybe their appearance, maybe their daily practices? What would they do? I was really interested in the question of how a average members, typical members in these groups experience this identity transformation, as, as you just described. Um, so a lot of the literature is focused on the leaders of, and founders and leaders of the groups, and that's understandable because they are really fascinating. They're the ones who um, sort of set these uh, ideas and institutions in motion, and they're the ones who are more likely to have um, sources to talk about what they thought and what they did than the typical members. But but the question for me was was really like how do you um, how does one enact this identity? Mm -hmm. And so I started to think about these practices. Uh, that really reshaped, um, help people to kind of reset themselves and and move through the world as something other than, you know, what they had been, which was most likely a Negro Christian. So uh, the book is organized around the kind of individual transformation through things like things that are not uncommon in other kinds of religious groups or in practices of conversion, although they didn't talk about it as conversion. They talked about it sometimes as reversion or kind of, right? It's a kind of um, apprehension of something that is true and hidden rather than the taking on of something that was new. So they would change their names often and some of the groups um, adopt new forms of dress, diet, um, family organization, things like that. And even to one of the things that interested me, certainly in relation to race, was how in some of the groups they came to understand their skin color in different ways through a kind of theological lens. So in the Moorish Science Temple, um, in which founder Noble Drawley talked about um, their theology as, um, that talked about their identity as, as Moorish Americans descended from, from Moors and as Muslims religiously, they, they came to 
see their, talk about their skin color as olive, again, regardless of, of the visual apprehension of it, if that is a theological term that they applied to remake themselves and, and connect themselves to a certain kind of divine lineage. So dress, diet, names, ideas about skin color, practices of um, uh, sex and sexuality and family organization, all of these things have surrounded the individual to remake them in the context of this new theology and whatever kind of community institutional structure um, it made available. You know, speaking of uh, noble Drew Ali, um, the new school that I'm teaching in, one of my students in one of my history classes mentioned that he had done a research project on noble Drew Ali's life in one of his history classes, which I found to be amazing because it's really amazing <laughs> yeah he, he's 15 years old and right when i started teaching him i had been reading your book the night before and i read your introduction chapter highlighting noble drew ali and the very next day this student mentioned he had done this project so like worlds were colliding right there for me so you start the book with these two figures alec brown bay and noble drew ali from the moore science temple and one of my favorite questions I like asking on this show is I ask historians and authors why they start their books with the anecdotes that they do. So can you tell me a little bit about these two figures and why you found them intriguing enough in the grand picture of African-American history to start your book with their, with their story? Alex Brown Bay is somebody who... Um, Nobody's probably ever written about before, whereas Noble Drully is someone who is more well-known, at least within um, the realms of African-American religious history or some broader scope of American religious history. Your student might have come upon um, that story in part because um, of the name Bay, which is very common in the Moore Science Temple one of the, the names that members took was Bay and another was Eel, spelled E-L, uh, that they understood to be their, their true names as Moorish Americans. And there are a lot of, of popular culture figures in, in basketball, in hip-hop, um, who have the name Bay and whose families have some connection to the Moorish Science Temple. So Nubal Juali is kind of known in that way. He was except that we don't actually know that much about him as a historical figure. Um, within the group, he was spoken of as, as um, Timothy Drew, born in North Carolina in 1886, and migrated to New Jersey, where he founded an organization called the Canaanite Temple, and then to Chicago, where he chartered the Moore Science Temple of America and gathered people around him around this idea that he was um, a prophet and brought this prophetic message that we are not Negroes, we are not colored, we are not Ethiopian, they would say, but Moors, descended from the Moors, and that we are Muslims. Um, he died in 1929, He was, um, and the movement continued in various uh, strands after after he died um, and spread beyond Chicago to various other cities through missionary work. He would send people out. And so Alec Brown Bay is someone who migrated to Philadelphia from the South and probably, um, probably joined the Moore Science Temple in the early 1930s after Noble Drewley had had uh, died. And I, I started the book with him because he's someone nobody ever heard of except members of his family and friends and so on. So he's not a public figure. He's not famous in any way, but was absolutely typical of, of the people who joined these movements. And his story captures for me what, um, what was at stake for an average person 
joining these such a movement. So he was someone who migrated to Philadelphia, heard someone preaching, met, we don't know exactly how he got into the Morse Science Temple, maybe a co-worker, maybe a neighbor, but he was transformed by this theology. He accepted this as true, that this was his identity. He took this new last name of Bay, or for them it was a kind of restoration of their true tribal name. Um, he and his family became members of the Moore Science Temple. And when he registered for the draft in 1942, which was when I, um, how I came upon him in the kind of archival records, he asked that his race be listed as Moorish American rather than Negro, which was on the draft card form. That is, that his complexion be described as olive, which I said was a theological commitment. So we can see sort of how um, committed he was to this, that in this really powerful moment of engagement with government officials, um, or, you know, with a branch of the government in the army, he insisted that his race be described through his theological lens, right? So that his religio-racial identity is recognized. Um, and it just really encapsulated from, I have many other uh, examples of such things, but as one, it just, it captured this, this, the average person, I keep saying this, but just someone who, who was really taken by the theology and became committed to it to this degree that it seemed the right place to to start the book. I want to come back to that archival research in just a second, but I really love your commitment to profiling like what you call ordinary people. And there was one anecdote that I was really taken by, and that was your account of Carrie Peoples being in her house and having W.D. Fard knock on her front door and then with her winding up joining the nation of Islam. And I like how your book not only focuses on like the charismatic leaders like Noble Drew Ali or W.D. Fard, but also on regular people's lives. And recently I was reading the book Being Muslim by Sylvia Chan Malik from Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And her book profiles ordinary people's lives as well. And I'm just so taken by the everyday lives of ordinary people. Like the power of individual stories is so compelling for readers. And I'm curious, um, what do you love about being able to write about the lives of ordinary people from a hundred years ago? Like, does it feel like a privilege to be able to bring these um, long deceased folks into our historical record in new ways? That's a really wonderful question a way to think about it um i i love it i mean it's the, it's the thing that got me in committed to writing this book when i say i was in my spare time you know researching mm. this book and not the one i said i was working on it was that i was just i was captivated by these people and their stories and finding snippets of things in newspaper accounts and um, I use uh, ancestry.com a lot or archives you know, library archival collections and it's just it is a privilege it is um, you know one thing I wanted to do was was shift the discourse about these groups and the members from the frame of cult to I talk about them as movements mostly groups um, and the religio racial frame helps me do that that's um, and I struggled is another way I came up with that framework was not just to talk about the individual sense of self that developed but as a I use it as a label for them for the groups for the movements to reject that idea that um, that these groups were all about a certain kind of coercion and abuse. That's not to say that those things didn't happen. Uh, they also happen in things that people are certain are religions. 
Um, so it didn't, to me, to call them cults didn't explain anything about them, um, didn't illuminate anything. And so shifting to the stories of ordinary people helped also to show the agency of, of members of these groups, that, these, that they, they were compelled and they made choices. And they also, in making those choices and in, in participating in these practices, self-fashioning practices, helped to produce the theologies and the institutional structures. And, um, and so I, did, I found that turning to them rather than just focusing on the leaders just made it such a much richer story. And I, I actually have a, a database I haven't looked at in a long time. I, I, I don't know. So collected so many names and addresses and you know places of birth and occupations and family members and you know they're not. I had to the the ratio of things I collected to the to the stories I could actually flesh out for the book is uh, you know it's like a huge funnel that comes down to just a couple of things. But it's so worth it, and I just, I don't know, I just, I just love combing through. When you, uh, when you go to a new city for the first time, do you look back at your archive and see if there's any addresses that you can go and stand at? <laughs> um, sometimes, yeah. I, I do like to do that. I also spent a lot of time, none of these ma- made it into the book as visual um, uh, sources, but I spent a lot of time now mapping things. So if I... F- in look reading the census, for example, um, which I, I love, um, the census is actually surprisingly textured and rich to me. Um, but I might collect a set of addresses in a particular city, and I'd love to just pop them onto a custom Google map and see what the physical relationship is, and that actually sort of visualizing these addresses help me tell certain part of the story about later in the, in the book about um, space and place and how people engage the urban environment in ways that derived in some ways from their, their theology. So mapping um, from those sources has been really useful for me. You know, and you've mentioned documentation and archives a couple times, and I was really just I found myself flipping through the book for your images and you had marriage certificates, death certificates, draft registration cards, FBI surveillance, census records, immigration forms. Tell me about this archival research process because like, I feel like if I were in that situation, I would be so overwhelmed that, that I would, that I would never get done. Like how do you, how do you, how do you navigate this as a historian, this overwhelming trove of research that you had to do? It's an interesting that's an angle on it because in some ways um, uh, I thought and maybe other people thought too going into this that, that there actually are no records, right? How do we get the ordinary people? They didn't leave our archival collections um, and the leaders didn't leave many either but there are a few Um but I think I started with the idea that it was going to be really hard because there were not sources. And then um, an accidental discovery in um, the draft card database, I had kind of passed through a veil where I realized there was this whole world of other kinds of sources that I could use, and then it became overwhelming. So I didn't start out thinking that, oh, there's so much stuff, how am I going to deal with this? Um, At first I thought, this is a really challenging thing. I don't actually have any sources from the people. How am I going to answer these questions? So I was, this happened before, even again, before I was committed to working on the book, and while I was teaching the graduate course, I we were reading about, Wentworth Arthur Matthew, who was the rabbi of the Commandment Keepers Ethiopian Hebrew Congregation. And we were reading an article by Jake 
Jacob Dorman, who since I taught that course, published a very um, important and useful book called Chosen, Pe- Chosen People about the rise of black Israelite religion. And we were reading an article he'd written about Wentworth Matthew, and, and he talked about how Matthew described his place of birth in different ways over time. And so I just went into Ancestry to find some primary sources in advance of the course session, class session to, to talk about with the students. And I happened on his World War II draft registration card, and I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, you know, I'd never used that kind of record that particular kind of record before, I didn't know. And when I looked at it, I saw that he had asked the registrar to write Hebrew in the box, on the form. So it's actually written above Negro, which is pre-printed on the form. And I actually taught the course, and I sat on that for a while. And then I wondered, hey, I wonder if members of other groups ask for those kinds of things, or other pe- people in the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations asked for that. And I went in and I found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds over time of that sort of thing. And so that opened up this world of bureaucratic paperwork and the idea that in some ways became really critical to my understanding of what was going on in these movements, that that the the production of this religio-racial identity happened on in an ongoing way and through these kinds of transactions with um, public officials in lots of places. And that so in the draft registration process, when the census enumerator came to the house, when they registered people for uh, their kids for school and asked that their tr- their true names, as they understood them, be used or that they be recognized racially for um, getting a driver's license and voting and marriage license and where you're going to be buried. All of these things were ways in which they continuously expressed their commitment to a particular religio-racial identity. And... Um, at the same time, so two other things briefly. One, it, it opened up to me the ways in which they both resisted uh, government-imposed classification systems and also sought to be included on their own terms. So they weren't just uh, opposed to I mean, the Nation of Islam is more the case, right? So they rejected the authority of the government. But in these other groups, they wanted, they rejected government-imposed classification, but wanted to be included and participate on their own terms. And I think I hadn't seen that really until I found this whole web of government documents. And then the last part of that is just to say that learning how to read kind of against the grain in those Mm. official documents was was important as well. Well, and I'm looking in the book right now, and I'm on page 111, where you have J. Pearsall Bates' World War II draft registration Mm -hmm. card, and I notice that Indian is crossed off and Moorish is written in, black skin is identified, or black um, eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also the complexion olive is written in at the bottom. And that's really so fascinating about agency of being able to identify and be involved in one's own terms, you know? It's just so cool. And I noticed that you did a lot of research at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, which is my hometown. That's where the military records yeah. are. Mostly by a lot can, of my correspondence. Can you... Um, can you tell me a little bit about the importance of the Caribbean and immigration into the creation of these groups? Yes. I. Um, it's something that I had hoped to highlight even more, but um, it was uh, important to me to think about the Caribbean origins of lots of the participants in these movements and not simply fold them into a kind of a broad African-American 
history, although, um, you know, certain second and third generation um, Caribbean, people of Caribbean descent were also part, part of these groups. But I had, um, it's related to your earlier question about various cities and their role in this. I wanted to, to think more expansively in terms of the geography of religious change during this early 20th century period that we talk about as the Great Migration. So that indicates a large-scale migration of African Americans from the South to both Southern urban contexts, but also to the North, and then in later um, periods, uh, in larger numbers to the to the West. But at and so I wanted to have a broader spread than the, the usual suspect cities of how people talk about the Great Migration of of, of New York, Chicago, um, De- Detroit, maybe, but to highlight Toledo or. Um, I mean, Philadelphia is also important, but other others and smaller cities where people settled and these groups took hold, and to also show the influence of immigrants from the Caribbean. And that I found primarily or kind of overwhelmingly in the the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, but also uh, somewhat in Father Divine's peace mission, where he had a, a large presence of of migrants from the Caribbean. And one of the important engines of these transfer, religious transformations um, was the, the, move, the Universal Negro Improvement Association that was founded by Marcus Garvey, who was um, Jamaican, who came to the US and established the UNIA headquarters in Harlem. And it was uh, both a crossroads for lots of um, African-Americans and Afro-Caribbean immigrants gathered around Garvey's um, transnational black political sensibility and also a kind of influence on other leaders from afar. So... Um, some of the early participants are, um, are Arnold Josiah Ford, who goes on to found uh, congregation Beth B'nai Abraham, one of the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, was the, um, um, the music um, leader of the UNIA. He was a composer and a band, a band leader and himself an immigrant. And um, so a lot of the people from these um, who went on to join the, the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations were directly involved in Garvey's movement. And then from afar, Noble Drali, for example, admired Marcus Garvey and talked about him as the, his kind of um, John the Baptist to um, write a kind of forerunner to the prophetic uh, message that Noble Drali would bring. So to kind of bring people from the Caribbean onto the same stage and recognize the ways in which um, these interactions were really generative of religious change was important to me and not just talk about them as um, part of African-American movements. So I'm also curious, like we've, we've said a lot of names here. So Noble Drawley, Father Divine, W.D. Fard, who are men. So I'm curious about what the role and importance of women within these groups is. What are their roles? Are they equal? Do they have leadership responsibilities? None of these movements that that took on the religio-racial approaches I'm it, I am interested in, right? That framed the book. None of them were founded by women. Um, we get lots of of. Um, religious creativity, ferment, transformation in the same period in the urban context among um, kind of holiness, Pentecostal movements, and we get groups that are founded by women in that theological orbit, but none of the religio-racial movements are founded by women. And in a way, I expected to find that they weren't very present either. 
um, one of the one of the things I expected when I had first approached these groups, thinking about them as perhaps talking about them as perhaps black nationalist groups, was that they would be um, kind of overwhelmingly patriarchal in that um, all kinds of nationalist groups that are invested in a certain kind of um, bounded national self-perpetuation. Often that kind of movement often requires containment of women in service to the nation in biological and family ways. Um, I didn't find the nationalist frame useful for these groups. And it also turned out that I found just tons of women, many more women in membership and as um, authoritative figures in a variety of ways. And so in turning the lens to the ordinary members and thinking about them as um, creators of these groups, as much as the founder and leader kind of gives forth the theology and a structure, but it's the ordinary people who enact it and in, in that work actually develop and change and transform that women also could be seen um, as producers of these movements. That in terms of kind of official theologies about the role of women, I mean, we, we get people like, there, there are spouses who are important figures in, in the movement. So um, Elijah Muhammad, who becomes the main prophet for the Nation of Islam after uh, W.D. Farad, the founder, is out of the picture, um, his wife, Clara Muhammad, is, is a major figure in the movement. Um, there is a recent book called The Promise of Patriarchy by um, Eula Taylor that talks a lot about, um, about Clara Muhammad and about a kind of a really com- complex negotiation of, of the Nation of Islam's patriarchy that, that does try and contain women through into reproductive modes, through discourses of protection. So the ways in which black women had been um, uh, sexually abused from slavery on by white men and, um, and kind of made to work in a variety of ways on behalf of whites. The, 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 na- the nation of Islam's theology involves um, protection discourse that contains women within the movement. Um, and Eula Taylor's work is, is thinking a lot about the, the interplay of black women's prominence and agency, particularly in the early movement, um, in ways that, that hadn't been quite as recognized and right, how they negotiate the patriarchal theology of that. Um, Father Divine's group there is overwhelmingly female membership and it's the peace mission was sex segregated and celibate, and yet he was married um, twice. And there was a, a figure named Mother Divine, and uh, they were seen as Mother Divine One and Mother Divine Two were understood within the movement as um, having the same spirit. So in some ways, they're the same person, um, and it was a spiritual marriage of, as he talked about it, as. Of, of God to the church and to his people. So um, the more Science Temple had many women in um, leadership of, of temples. And while there were no ordained women in the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, women were very prominent figures in, um, in the, the life of the, of the congregations and in the educational world. So it turned out to be a much more complicated landscape, um, very different across the groups. But I found so many more women than I expected. And I tried really hard, again, in reclaiming these stories of average, ordinary members to highlight uh, women's stories as much, if not more, than, than men. 
Wonderful. Well, in the conclusion of the book, I want to talk. I kind of want to bring us up to the present day just a little bit to end on. And in the conclusion, you mentioned a decline in Father Divine's peace mission movement. You mentioned a schism in the Moorish Science Temple and also leadership conflicts in the Ethiopian Hebrew congregation. So I'm curious if you could just kind of describe the current state of these groups. Do they still exist? Uh, and where can listeners or readers find them today? All of the groups exist in some form. Uh, and some are some are declining dramatically and some are trying to... Um, reinvigorate and revive themselves. And in some ways, I, I, in talking about the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations and the more science temple, I underplay the fracturing over time and kind of present them as, a, as more uniform. And, and that's partly because of the time period that I'm working on. But the Moore Science Temple did um, uh, develop very, after Noble Drew Ali died, there was a, a conflict over succession to leadership and various um, strands developed under different um, successor leaders. And so you can find lots of different groups around now um, uh, the more science temple of America. They have slight variations on their names that, um, might, that give indication of their lineage. Um, but if you, you know, look on the internet, you'll still find them. Um, there's a new book about to be published by, uh, Spencer do called the Alleyites. And what he's done is really interesting in looking at, a even broader, scope of groups that trace their origins to Noble Drew Ali. So he's developed this frame, framework, a kind of descriptive term of Aliite. And so there are lots of other groups that figure in here that really even broaden the scope to ones that um, uh, we might get, often get grouped under the heading of, of sovereign nation groups. So I look out for his book. It's coming out soon. And I learned a lot from from reading it. So so the single more science temple doesn't exist, but there are lots of groups that there are several groups that call that call themselves more science temple in some way and have direct lineage. And then there's a broader scope. Um, the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations were all were became um, there were kind of schismatic congregations founded um, over the 1940s and 50s, and then they grouped together into what's called the Israelite Board of Rabbis. And after Wentworth Matthew died in, in the 1970-something, I don't recall the exact date, um, they never named another chief rabbi. And so there's a um, various, um, the, the son of one of the first generation of those rabbis is a, um, a congregational leader. There were various people who were kind of operating to keep this movement going, and there were other kinds of conflicts, but they've recently kind of tried to reconsolidate, named a new chief rabbi, um, Capers Founier, who's a, a rabbi in Chicago, and they're trying to expand and think about ways in which they can bring other strands of independent um, black Hebrew congregations together. So they may be growing. Um, the peace mission has um, diminished in size. The second mother divine died just several years ago. Um, they're down to very few members. They're a celibate movement and um, have not had people join in many years, and so we may be witnessing the last handful of followers there. Um, the Nation of Islam is, has never been as, as large as it sort of seems based on its public presence, but it, it continues, and um, I think the question will be, I guess, what, 
what happens after Louis Farrakhan's leadership. Um, but they're all present in some way, but but I I would say they're, with the exception of the Nation of Islam that became very prominent when Malcolm X was, was a spokesperson, a major figure, I think they all uh, reached their peak of prominence in the 1940s and 50s. Well, Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, um, I'm really grateful to you today for spending an hour with me to talk about your book, New World Coming, uh, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. Can you tell listeners where they can find you if they want to follow your work or know more? I have a website, uh, judithweisenfeld.com. And um, you can find me on Twitter, too, at J.L. Weisenfeld. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure for me. Thank you so much for your interest in the work. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.